BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. So we're going to go in a little bit of a different direction with this segment. Uh, this is not exactly hardcore NBA basketball, but because the NBA China saga has been in people's minds uh, so far, the NBA has gotten a lot of criticism for how they've handled it. They've also gotten a lot of praise for how they've handled it. And so uh, as we often do, uh, I wanted to bring in an expert on this subject. And that's uh, Bill Bishop, who uh, writes the awesome newsletter, Cynicism.com. Bill, how you doing? Oh, great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'd like to compliment you, by the way, on just having a fantastic name uh, for your site. It's really just, <laughs> as a amateur student of world history, I, I really just enjoyed uh, the pun there. It's fantastic. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I, pre- I, I it was intentional, but I also wanted a name that kind of wasn't just China, but sort of captured a broader, um, sort of let me write about more than just a sort of a narrow subject t- subject matter like China tech or China politics. So, so I appreciate that. Uh, let's, uh, let's get right into it here. Obviously, this situation the NBA is dealing with is not necessarily unique. One of the, I think there are some unique elements with how public it is and how public many of the figures are. Um, but just uh, overall, I mean, people obviously will uh, assume a baseline knowledge of of what's going on, what's uh, followed Daryl Morey's tweets. uh, But how do you think the NBA has handled this situation so far? Well, I think the initial reaction was fumbled. Um, I think in part, um, from what I understand, because Commissioner Silver and, and a lot of folks were in Tokyo, and so they were kind of dealing with a crisis um, out of sync with with some of the people back at headquarters. But the initial statement from the NBA was pretty weak, and then the local folks in China um, put out a, a a slightly different statement in Chinese that that was much more of an apology. Um, I think then yeah, that that was the, that's the Weibo statement that. Yeah, the, way, the Weibo statement. Yeah, that really oh, yeah. Um, was was was. Yeah, you'll be pronouncing my, or, or you'll be correcting my pronunciation plenty here. So so feel free, feel free. To <laughs> so, no, no, no. But but um, but then within 24 hours, I thought, frankly, um, I thought Commissioner Silver um, at the press conference and his statement in Tokyo was actually pretty good. Um, frankly, as as good as I've seen from any American corporate executive. Um, you know, it's a it's an incredibly difficult situation um, where, and he's he's stuck, and the NBA is stuck between. Um, U.S. politicians and the Chinese government, Chinese fans, and Chinese market. And so um, they're kind of in a, I don't want to say no-win situation, but um, for for the stakes, for the stakes, I think um, that second statement was much better. Um, and then since then, obviously, they basically said nothing, which I think is also uh, the right thing to do as they try and figure out how to craft a tolerable, tolerable resolution for all sides. So uh, a lot to unpack there. Um, uh, the uh, Weibo is that how you say it? Uh, Weibo. Weibo. 
Okay. All right. That, that, I, that may be as close as, as <laughs> it's okay. but, but, uh, so, uh, but so that statement, uh, it was basically apologizing the, the translations that I saw multiple outlets saying it characterized Maury's, uh, tweet as inappropriate. The NBA then kind of fired back with an excellently crafted PR statement that actually said nothing about how, oh, we've seen varied interpretations of this, not translations, but interpretations of it. So, uh, but just so we have it here, I mean, that statement did say what news outlets said, right? That Maury's tweet was inappropriate. The one in Chinese? Yes. Uh, yeah. And it was actually closer to, um, uh, it was it was a bit closer to I think more of a real apology um, the yeah. one in Chinese and so the NBA and again from my understanding was that that was done um, that was a, a sort of a local level decision yeah um, that didn't come through headquarters then they had to clean it up yeah now that it seemed like that was kind of what it was I mean I, I would have wished that the NBA could have said that you know it does have the appearance of them kind of just wanting to have their cake and eat it exactly. too but yeah but I, I mean I, I agree with you I mean so you said you know it's been the way they've handled it has been as good as any American executives have. When you say good, I mean, what criteria are, are you using to evaluate it there? Well, I think they didn't immediately issue a groveling abject apology and fire <laughs> yes. Maury. I mean, the, the bar is low, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, so and that's what that's what other companies have been doing. Uh, they've been very quickly um, issuing apologies and you know basically saying they you know they'll never do it again. I think in one case, I think it was I don't want to say the brand because I forget, but it was one of the big U.S. brands got in trouble because one of their contract workers who did their social media liked a Twitter post about the Dalai Lama or Tibet. And they fired him, right? So, um, so as these things go, the NBA has actually been, um, again, it's, it's they haven't come out and said, China, we're going to say whatever we want to say. But they, I think Commissioner Silver was very clear. He addressed the fact that, um, you know, we're dealing with two different political systems. You know, I think that, um, and and he did say he supported the right of, um, uh, you know, people in the NBA to express um, express their opinions. And so, um, it, it is. It was not a complete immediate climb down like you see with most other corporate entities. Yeah. And it really seems like this is a different situation. Uh, when you look at some of the differences between this, it's, this isn't some nameless employee or contractor who doesn't have any power, right? Like the whole, that, I mean, that's the whole reason perhaps that it was so offensive uh, to the, the Chinese community that Daryl Morey has, you know, at least some kind of a platform. He is the representative of a company that while it's, you know, a big corporation, you know, two, $2 billion corporation, the Houston Rockets, but they have more profile than your average $2 billion corporation. And it seems like to me that cuts both ways, right? You can either have that, hey, there's going to be more outrage out of it because these are more public followers and these are celebrities and stuff. But it's also those individuals have more power where they can't just get axed the way, you know, say a contract worker who likes a tweet could be. Uh, that's right. And and I think also, you know, the Rockets have a, a unique history in China as well, just because of the Yao Ming connection. Um, and so, and, you know, I mean, the NBA has, for the most part, been loved in China. And so this is, you know, I wrote a, I wrote a, uh, one of my newsletters last week, talked about how the NBA has leverage with China, which, you know, some people thought is crazy because who, who has leverage with the Communist Party? But the fact is, is that, um, you know, the, the, the NBA, again, it has several hundred million fans. It's, um, massively popular. And yes, people are patriotic, but, um, they also, 
you know, they can, you'd like to think they're, they're a strong enough, mature enough, confident enough country that they can get mad without completely junking the NBA. Um, there's also, you know, one of the important things to look at is the, is the sort of the, the geopolitical backdrop where, you know, the U.S. and China are in the middle of a, of a, of a real shift, structural change in their relationship. And, you know, there are folks in the, in the U.S. and D.C. who are pushing this idea of decoupling where we really split off the U.S. and China's economy in many ways. And Beijing doesn't want that. And the NBA and basketball have been one of the one of the most successful symbols of engagement and coupling with China over the last several decades. And so I think Beijing would really prefer not as much as they, you know, as much as there was a lot of anger last week, I think there has been a realization over the last few days that there's a real risk that if they actually um, push too hard, this is just another nail in that coffin of the coupling. Um, and then again, China's got the Winter Olympics in a little more than two years. And banning the NBA a couple of years before those Olympics is just not a good look and not something that I think they want to deal with. It does seem really fascinating, right? Because it seems like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, obviously, because uh, I'm not an expert on this. You know, I, I, you know, I read sixth tone every once in a while. I have that in my feedly. I'll read, you know, the odd New York Times story on China. You know, I'm, I may be a little more informed than the average American about this stuff, but not particularly so. So feel free to uh, correct any misimpressions that I may have. But it seems like the Chinese government has their authoritarian bent. And in so many of these things, world affairs, this thing with the NBA, Hong Kong, it's they want to be as authoritarian as they can, but there are limits to it, whether that's public opinion, whether that's cracking down so hard in their own population that there is too much dissent. Uh, you know, it seems like they want to be as authoritarian as they can within these limits, and they're constantly probing at the edges of these limits. I think that's a good way to put it. I mean, they, they do have, um, you know, they're, they're within reason, they do care about what the population thinks. And so, um, so, and the other thing is they do care about is they also are very concerned about, um, people getting too angry about anything. And so even like last week with the NBA situation, you know, there was a lot of, of nationalism and patriotism, you know, that immediately sort of exploded online. Um, and, you know, the, the Chinese government has been, um, effectively, um, you know, they, they've been, they've been running a long term multi decade patriotic education campaign to, to make sure that people are effectively indoctrinated, um, in sort of a deeper, stronger sense of patriotism and nationalism. Um, and, but the risk then is it can get out of control. And so the, 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 the Chinese government has regularly these, these episodes over the last few years where they, they have to let things kind of, they will have to let things go up and then they dial it up a little bit. And then when it gets too much or it gets to look like it's going to be a bit of a problem, they have to dial it back down. Um, and so I think in this case, you know, one of the things though that's important to, to point out is in spite of this patriotic education campaign I mentioned earlier and this indoctrination, the reality is, is the, is the patriotism is, is very real in most quarters and there's, it's justified. You know, you look at how far China has come in the last 40 years. It, it is quite amazing. And so there's a real um, justified and deserved sense of, of pride in China and China's um, growing stature in the world. And so it's a it's a mixture of sort of manufactured um, propaganda meets real patriotism. Um, and to the point where, where you were talking about earlier about how things they want to be you know, very authoritarian when people 
are allowed to express um, anger um, about any subject, they tend to express it really vocally because there are so few outlets. Um, and then mm. if it goes, if it gets too much, then the government can, you know, does a fairly good job of fairly quickly, quickly dialing it back. And I think right now what we're seeing is over the last few days, I think we're definitely seeing a dialing back where um, you're not seeing concerted attacks on the NBA or particular individuals in the NBA in any of the official Chinese propaganda. You're seeing um, just a different tone when it comes to how some of the some of the key media folks are talking about the NBA right now. So from from that perspective, the NBA should be encouraged that there may be a positive resolution here, short of a death sentence. Do you think that that uh, that concern about there being too much outrage does that kind of stem back to the Cultural Revolution, where it seemed like uh, that that type of fervor really got out of control? Uh, I think that's part of it. I think it's also just it's it's you know even closer. It's you know what happened in 1989, and then yeah. also just um, over the over the years, you know, there's there's a lot of pent up um, frustration in Chinese society, and you know the the various me- control mechanisms the Communist Party has put in place are pretty good, um, and so again. Like like whenever there's a bit of a, a bit of a seam in one or or an opening of one of the valves, things tend to rush out really quickly. Um, and so it 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 it. But it is you know I mean I, I was there in 2012 when there was a big protest against the Japanese and it, it was you know my kids were at a school across from the official Japanese school in Beijing that was where all the embassy kids went and you know they they there was some vandalism and the next day there were dozens of police cars and cops and there were protests on the streets in Beijing and other cities until I think for three or four days and then Sunday afternoon. Came and the, the official propaganda and Weibo, people on Weibo all started saying, okay, now we need to protest rashly. And then Monday morning, the protests were gone. People were still angry, but that outlet had been closed. That then had been closed. Ah, that, that's really interesting. So I, I think for a lot of Americans and perhaps me as well, I mean, my default is, and this is probably way too reductive to be like, all right, you know, these people are living under an authoritarian regime. And, you know, we, I at least grew up with the Soviets where there was the official propaganda and then it seemed like because that regime was kind of crumbling that it, there was all this resentment below the surface and the average Soviet person was kind of dissatisfied with their government. But I, I think it, what you made is an important distinction in China because, yeah, we could say, hey, you know, you've got all these these problems here, lack of democracy, no free speech, et cetera. But because the average Chinese person's life has improved so much in the last 40 years, as you mentioned, you know, it does seem like that's, you know, that's what they're comparing it to. They're not necessarily comparing it to us. I think there's maybe people who acknowledge that it could be better, but generally it seems like the level of loyalty towards the government on things like this is pretty high. I think that's, um, you know, you can, you can overstate, not the other, but you can't overstate that, but you can also dramatically understate that. And I think, I think there's been a lot of commentary that's aired on the side of understating that. So do you think like it would would have been possible for China to just totally ban the NBA? Like, could, could they realistically have done that? You talked about the NBA having leverage uh, or was that just something that you know, they might have threatened to do it and people were worried about it? Uh, you know, the NBA salary cap might go down because they're not going to show any of the games. But do you think that was ever really on the table or uh, I mean, is it cert- still on the table? It, it's certainly f- possible. I think it, it would be a bad outcome for everybody involved. I mean, they, they a few years ago um, when um, the, the South Korea – uh, agreed to allow the U.S. to station a, a missile defense system in South Korea that the Chinese didn't were unhappy about. Um, they ended up the Ch- 
Chinese ended up effectively destroying the China operations of a large South Korean conglomerate called Lati and, you know, cost, I think the economic damage to Lati was around $5 billion. Um, this is a company that had spent, you know, many, many years building up a pretty significant operation in China with a lot of Chinese employees and a lot of Chinese customers. And within a year, they were basically dead. Um, and so, um, the, if the Communist Party wants to do it, they can do it. But I think what we're seeing is they're, they, they, I don't think they want to do it, but, Let's let's be clear. The message has been sent. And so, you know, the Chinese, the Communist Party, the Chinese, the Chinese government, in fact, doesn't have to do anything now. But do you really think that another NBA general manager or owner or player is going to say anything <laughs> that they think is going to screw themselves, going to screw them up in China? Right. I mean, this is and I wrote in my newsletter today, you know, I quoted this um, this China, this China scholar. I think he's at Princeton still, Perry Link, who wrote something in 2002 talking about how censorship worked inside China. And he, he described this this idea of the anaconda, the giant anaconda in the chandelier, which was basically that the the, the Chinese government did need to tell um, people in China, writers, authors, reporters, what wasn't allowed because they all, they all knew sort of looking up the chandelier that there was a big snake up there that would eat them if they did the wrong thing. And so they were very careful. Um, and, and now I think what we're seeing is that that anaconda is now global. And so the NF, the NBA, this is the NBA's time in the barrel. They had learning their lesson. And so I think, you know, to be cynical, you know, I think what comes out of it is there's been some damage to the NBA. They're most likely going to be able to continue. The Rockets may be in the doghouse for a bit longer, but the, the message is 100% crystal clear to everybody else in the NBA from a team level to a player level. Because if a player says the wrong thing and they, they, an individual player becomes the subject of another bout of sort of patriotic uprising online and boycotts, et cetera, it can cost individually cost them millions of dollars from their China sponsorships and potentially, you know, semi-retirement of the CBA when they when they're done with the when the NBA, right? Yeah. No, I, I mean that that's a great way to put it. And I think in having some conversations with people around the league, uh, you know, I, I initially as an American is, is kind of disappointed. I mean, I understand that it may not be people's issue, Hong Kong, but I thought at the very least, hey, the fact that China the Chinese are, are able to censor American citizens talking about Hong Kong, like that was really anathema to me and so you know steve kerr had a yeah 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 steve kerr had a a press conference on thursday in which he very pointedly didn't say anything about the issue and he retreated into both sides of sidesism which I, i'd like to talk to you about more in a second here but you know but steve his brother is a uh professor who who deals with some of these issues and he had previously retweeted something that was pro hong kong just a few weeks ago he was clearly just uh, lying his ass off frankly uh and so i was wait I'm wait like, sorry hey, steve yeah. steve kerr had retweeted something for hong kong and, it, and the chinese missed it yeah like like three weeks ago there's i just saw there's a, a has he deleted it or is it still up no it was still up as of like a couple of weeks ago, or as of a couple of days ago oh that could be trouble interesting yeah well i think i mean uh, to, to your point they may well be aware of it but it just didn't create this fur because the china games weren't about to start it wasn't daryl morey it wasn't the houston rockets you know it wasn't right at the start of the season you know it was a retweet instead of a you know fresh tweet i don't know you know retweets are not endorsements whatever right, right, right. whatever it is i mean and, and it seems to me like because the message has been sent now that there's not really much point as in high, going back and highlighting that now too it's already happened it's kind of more this seems like proactive like don't do this again and they've reached this uneasy detente where the nba says hey we can talk about this but uh but and, we're not going and to the PR, <laughs> the PR, and the prc is like 
yeah, well, you better not talk about this. And they're right. like, we can, but uh, hey, just so you know, we're probably not going to, you know, so, so it seems like they've reached this uneasy detente where, you know, obviously it could fall apart uh, with an individual actor. But yeah, I mean, that's, uh, what do you think of that? No, I think that's, I think that's, that's, I think that's what's happening. And I think that um, that puts some of the, um, you know, that's going to put some of the the players in a, in a and, and some of the more outspoken coaches in a difficult position because um, they do care about um, social issues, social justice issues. And, you know, one of the issues that I think um, has, you know, it, it was one of the fans, I think the sign got taken away. I think it was at a Wizards game last week where yeah. one of the preseason where he had the sort of Google Uyghurs sign. And, you know, the Uyghurs are um, a Muslim minority group in Western China and Xinjiang who um, there are north of a million of them who put into various types of camps. The Chinese call them re-education camps. Other people call them, um, you know, say they're more than just re-education. And so, yeah. you know, yeah. that's... Re-education isn't exactly like a great term. No, 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 no. I mean, some people call them concentration camps. You know, they're it's awful. Whatever, it's awful. When that's like the good name for it, you know, it's probably not very good. No, that's that's you're exactly right. And so, you know, there are um, I don't know how many um, Muslim basketball NBA players there are, but there are some, right? And you know, this is an issue that um, other you know, there's certainly a lot of. activists and groups around the world who are getting much more outspoken about this issue. Um, you know, the NBA players, some of them, you know, you would think that this is something they would care about, but that's another thing where if they were to express an opinion that was against what the Communist Party says is going on, um, you could see a similar reaction to what we saw over Hong Kong. And so I think, um, and, and, you know, again, it's personal to these guys, right? I mean, it's not just a potential hit to the salary cap, but like I said earlier, it's also how many of these guys are raking money out of China from various types of endorsement deals, appearance fees, and how many then, you know, how many end up retiring into the CBA for a pretty fat contract? Yeah, the, that's and, a and, point. Too. And, yeah. and so, I mean, if you're if you're looking at your own personal career, um, I mean, I'm not I'm, I'm not apologizing for it. I'm just saying, I mean, you can see it's a very, you know, the, the Chinese have set up a, the Chinese government has set up a very, I think, effective um uh, uh, what's the right word? A, f- a sort of effective framework where you can decide you want to be outspoken. That's fine. You're going to lose a ton of money or you can just keep quiet on this issue. And you know what? You're going to make maybe as much money as you make from your, uh, MBA salary. If you're good enough. So uh, to add to that point, uh, before we went on the, on that tangent about Kerr, um, I, it, you know, it bothered me the way that no one has been willing to speak up. And so a, a perspective, and that would include even like my colleagues that say ESPN, right? Who have, have this, uh, this deal with Tencent and there's a reports of a, of a memo, uh, that went out to ESPN right. that they're going to try to and, avoid and, this subject, avoid, yeah, go ahead. And the proper, the, the, the map that was, um, <laughs> that was the map oh, of the China jump, that yeah. was the, that actually added a dash. China has a nine dash line. ESPN gave them a 10 dash line. I don't know if there was like <laughs> spinal tap. They wanted to turn it up a little bit more to really suck up or what, but it was pretty ridiculous. Yeah. So, so all of that stuff and in talking with some of my colleagues, um, talking to people around the league, I, cause my thought was, Hey, you know, if I were Steve Kerr, I've got, you know, tens of millions of dollars in the bank, you know, Daryl Morey with his thing, right? Like I, I said this on a, on a previous pod, Hey, you know, he's made all this money. If he really feels that strongly, like why not just leave the tweet up, tell him, Hey, you know, just fucking fire me. If, uh, you know, if you're going to try and muzzle my, my free speech, if you really feel that strongly about it. Um, and he should have never made the tweet if he wasn't going to stick with it. But 
and talking to some more people, you talked about the personal financial aspects, but now because of this framework, as you put it, that the Chinese government has put up there, if you, if Steve Kerr says something, he's not only screwing himself over, he could be fucking the whole league, right? Like the, the whole league could, you know, at least Steve his Kerr, team to start yeah. with his team, definitely yeah. his team, if not the whole league. Yes. Right. Right. I mean, and no player, no wants coach, to, no executive. Be that asshole who yeah. does it, right? Not exactly. To, not, right. But no one wants to be that jerk. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to take a 15% cut out of everybody's paycheck with one comment. Like nobody, like, so it's not just you. I think if it were only personal financial consequences of people who are in positions where they're fine, they might do it. But I mean, that's perhaps right. no, the that's genius, a, that's the a evil good genius. way to put it. Yeah. The evil genius of the way the Chinese have handled this uh, to where now people won't speak up because you're more afraid of your colleagues being hurt even than you are collective punishment they're they're good at that yeah right i mean it's it's like a, in high school basketball one guy misses the free throw and everyone has to run right like <laughs> until it's you just, puke it's, right no it's right yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i mean yeah i mean we're, we're joking about this but like i mean i no, I mean it's not funny, but I think yeah, I think yeah. this is I mean this is this is where I think the playbook is for the Chinese and this is where you know the NBA obviously wants to um they don't want this relationship to end. Um I think China doesn't, but China again, it's their time in the barrel and they're going to come out of there with I think a set of lessons that they will have to internalize if they want to not have a much bigger crisis in the future. And it's very, <laughs> you know, and it's very unfortunate and the other thing is that you know the NBA is going to get more and more pressure from um, I think the U.S. Congress, especially, you know, you saw President Trump. I mean, you know, the, they're sort of the GOP doesn't like the NBA anyway because the players are tend to be, yeah. um, you know, saying things, they're talking about things that the GOP doesn't want them to be talking about. And so, um, y- you know, the NBA has to be very careful, which is why I don't, I don't think there's going to be any sort of specific agreement. I think they're just kind of all going to kind of get an understanding. Yeah. I mean, well, and, and that's kind of the house of cards that this has been on for the last 30 years with the, the NBA and, and plenty of other, uh, companies too. So, you mentioned that what they do with that South Korean company where, you know, just $5 billion, just poof like that. It, I think it was a few, but I think it was yeah. five or more, but it was basically yeah. just that investment was toast. Yeah. So I would think that the NBA would have more leverage because it's so public and it's also just not as easily replaceable, right? Like anyone who's doing business in China and the Chinese have done a great job of this. They can just give you a Chinese company that'll just do that for you instead. You know, and, right. and the, the, the whereas, CBA yeah. is not the NBA and it's not going to be the NBA for a very long time. Yeah. I, I had this, this crazy idea in my head of like, maybe just the, they ban the NBA and then just like use government money to like pay LeBron James, like $300 million a year or something like that. But, uh, that that's probably unrealistic. Uh, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it would be like, uh, a little harder to just get rid of uh, the NBA completely, especially because, I mean, at least to me, there's an inherent ridiculousness of, you know, a couple of tweets, a little bit of free speech, and all of a sudden this whole league that everyone loves that, you know, 500 million people spend, you know, hours a week following is just gone. Like, that is kind of ridiculous. And It is ridiculous, you know, and yeah. it makes China look, like, incredibly fragile. And, yeah. you know, meanwhile, they're trying to, the, the Communist Party is trying to propagandize all around this idea of, you know, we're, you know, this self-confidence and they talk about these four confidences and one is whatever they're, they're trying to project this image of being confident and and taking a much bigger role in global affairs and so for them to effectively block you know the the, the best the, the premier league of one of the most popular sports in the world it, there's a lot of downside for for the chinese government if they do it and so i think that um you know they they amped up the volume to 11 they 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 made a big stink they let people rage and yell online and you know they did the thing
things like they, you know, they're, they're, they're punishing the rockets and they'll be punished for a while. But again, I think this is part of the playbook where they, they, I think they realize that they may not get the kind of groveling object apology out of the NBA and Commissioner Silver that they got out of other companies. Um, but they're still going to get their, effectively their pound of flesh. Might just be a little more, um, uh, not so, uh, explicitly articulated by the NBA. Yeah, and, and I think again because the NBA is so public uh, here as well, you know, the NBA has limits, right? I mean, yeah, they'd love the the China business is pretty big, but uh, the American business is still bigger. a lot bigger, right? Right. You know, they, no, that's right. Uh, um, and, and I'm glad kind of that uh, the NBA has recognized that, and you know, I mean, they've come under fire for both sides of the aisles, particularly for the apologizing uh, message uh, that was uh, in Mandarin. So. Um, Let's talk a little bit about just the overall Hong Kong situation here. I, I mean, we've heard a lot of this is a complex issue. We've heard a lot of both sidesism. That's the trope that a lot of these NBA people have been asked about it have fallen back on. I mean, is there any both sidesism? I mean, for me as an American, like I'd like to, I have a decent understanding of American values and how we tried to conduct ourselves abroad. I mean, from a normal American's perspective, is there any both sides to this, or should we just kind of be, you know, siding with? you know, at least as I have been, the pro-democratic, uh, you know, pro-freedom protests in Hong Kong. Well, so so the, 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 the original protests and the vast majority of the protesters are not asking for um, independence from, from the People's Republic of China. Yeah. Right? That's, yeah. that's I mean, not Joe, one of their – they're, yeah. they're asking for China to live up to the agreement they made when the British handed over Hong Kong in 1997, right? They're asking for what they thought – people thought was going to be uh, more direct representation and more, more ability to vote in their chief executive and, and some other things. Um, but it's been, you know, the way, you know, information is very tightly controlled in chi- inside mainland China and especially around sensitive issues like protests in one of its territories. And so the, the, the narrative inside mainland China around all the, the propaganda, um, and reporting about the, about the protests is that it's a separatist movement that these people want to, want their independence. And, you know, that, that is what a lot of people inside China Kind of believe, even though it's actually not accurate, um, and that's where I think you, you mentioned Joe Tsai. I mean, that's sort of where I think there was one of the big problems with his letter was kind of this this sort of regurgitation of what is really the party line about Hong Kong. Yeah, I mean, I really did, did not care for that aspect of it, and uh, you know, you could say. I mean, I guess it seems like from just the the reading of news reports that I've done that there's enough there. I mean, I think there are like some banners that were unfurled for independence at some of the universities in Hong Kong where they're okay maybe there's like a very small element of it uh advocating for that extreme which by the way uh you know i i wouldn't be against frankly like i think as americans we shouldn't be against that if they would like independence from an authoritarian regime like you know that's right I mean, but, but you know that it's, for years, it's, you know? it's a it's a small um vocal but small group the same is where there's yeah. there's increasing amounts of violence there's a lot of police violence in hong kong where the police have gotten pretty out of control but there are a group of protesters who are who are pretty out of control too um but i think the bigger issue you know the u.s government doesn't recognize Hong Kong as an independent territory. They're not proposing right. anything that recognizes Hong Kong as an independent territory. Um, but for the purposes of the of Beijing and the Communist Party, you know, it's 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 framing it as this separatist independence movement. Um, immediately, um, you know, there's a lot of there was already a lot of tension between mainland Chinese and Hong Kong Chinese for some various historical reasons. But but then sort of adding the 
fuel of their separatists um, really, really inflamed how people view Hong Kong and the protests over the last few few weeks and months. And so that that's where the Mori tweet sort of fell right in the middle of that as kind of like a sort of an accelerant or a spark. Um, and then and then it was just unfortunate that Joe Tsai decided to basically, um, I mean, in some ways, it was kind of a really patronizing letter that um, really elided a lot of facts in history to basically um, align himself with how trying to basically basically giving this is and maybe if he just said, and this is what Beijing, this is what the Chinese government is telling its people, then it would have actually made the letter much better because the reality is, is what he described is how people see it. But he left out the important part that a lot of that is actually made manufactured through propaganda. Yeah, I can't believe that the head of uh, Alibaba is just parroting the party line. I never, never would have expected that from him. Well, he owns the South China Morning Post. He's worth I don't know how many billions of dollars, and you know yeah. Alibaba exists at the at the um, grace of the Communist Party. All these companies do. I mean, this is not you know as tough as it seems to the NBA. Trust me, the Chinese, the the, the bosses of Chinese companies have it much tougher. Yeah, it seems that way, and it does seem like the the Chinese government is in a difficult position with Hong Kong here because okay. It, it, you can characterize it as separatist. I mean, it seems like that's almost all they can do because if you're if you're just going to say, oh yeah, they're just like fighting for these these freedoms and we made this agreement with them, you know, it, it's almost like, well, okay, if they get these these freedoms, then why does the rest of China like what's so special? Yeah. No, about it's a Hong it's Kong? a it's a terribly complex issue that has no um, good resolution. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the, that was what I was going to ask you next is is you know obviously it's impossible to predict this stuff but i mean where do you think this ends up ultimately it seems like there's no end in sight to these processes i mean this is millions of people like you have to feel real strongly to protest against an authoritarian regime and like you know not go to your job and instead we're going to protest right. you know, i mean it takes a lot a lot to incite that kind of f- fervor um, it, it does and yeah. we're in a really bad cycle of um police violence police brutality uh a small group of protesters who were fighting back and who were you know who are also using violence and vandalism and you know burning down subway stations and stuff that you know doesn't look constructive but at the same time you know there are a lot of people who are desperate because i think the the people in hong kong you know the ones who thought thought it through you know, they they only see an increasingly a city that it just increasingly looks like another mainland Chinese city. And a lot of them don't want to live in a city like that. And so and, and so it's, you know, the, but the police keep ratcheting up the pressure and the violence. It becomes this really sort of self-reinforcing cycle that, um, you know, I think best case, we just have kind of a slow burn for the foreseeable future. Um, worst case, something big happens. And then the then the Chinese, the, the, the um, Beijing decides to send in more. Um, you know, some some element of their security services in a more visible way to crack down. I think that's still pretty far off. I hope it is, but but there is no there is no clear happy outcome anytime soon. Yeah, and I think at least at this point, you know, and you can illuminate a little bit like what the level of violence has been on both sides of, for some of our listeners. But you know, at this point, Beijing still has like a little bit of plausible deniability to me. Like they can say, hey, you know what, these protesters uh, are rowdy. Like they're the ones with civil disobedience we're being very tolerant here like even even now this is almost i mean it's it's not good that this is going on but this is more sustainable than if they really like bring in the troops and crack down then it's like no like you don't even have plausible deniability that like no this is a bunch of rowdy protesters we're the ones doing the right thing like everything all the opinion turns against you at that point right. in time and, and to yeah. take it back to the nba if there is a real crackdown 
you know, then the NBA players and management, they're still going to not say anything, right? I mean, this is, this is a, um, you know, this is an issue that's going to not go away anytime soon. And, you know, for, for the NBA or any other company, um, it, it, again, I think if there's a, if there's, and I, I think it's unlikely that there'll be like a, say, a 1999, a 1989 style crackdown in Hong Kong. But if there were, you know, certainly every company in the NBA has to have a contingency plan for how do they react if there's some sort of significant crackdown. Um, and it won't be pretty either, you know, certainly won't be pretty in Hong Kong. And it won't be pretty on how the company, the corporations have to deal with it. Um, but, you know, I think again, it's just, this goes back to, I think the, the sort of the, the theme of this conversation, which is, you know, for the NBA and other companies, there are all these issues in the in China that are very sensitive and they're not going to get resolved anytime soon. So the Xinjiang, the Uyghurs, um, the, the camps in Xinjiang, uh, Hong Kong, um, the two examples we've talked about. And so, um, you know, they're, they're just increasing numbers of potential minefields for organizations and players and coaches and management um, sort of talking about China where they, you know, th- they say the wrong thing and we're back to where we were a week ago. Right. And so, yeah. Um, and, and this is, this is this is just an amount of you know China has a big market. It's a it's you know they have a um, they talked for years about sort of increasing their share of um, international discourse power, right? They, they, the Communist Party has said that you know the Western media has you know they have too much power in the global discourse about world events and specifically about China. So they the Chinese government, Communist Party, they want to control the global discourse about China in any language, not just in Chinese. And so this kind of you know leveraging the the market. Market. And so coercing and co-opting um, people with interests in the Chinese market is part of that strategy as a way to make sure that they, they're shaping the, the global conversation about China in ways that the Communist Party approves. And so um, and as so, again, I think this is the the the, the NBA will eventually, I think, be um faced with another crisis because I do think that even we talked about earlier, I think somebody's going to say something at some point if things get bad and they're just, even though they don't want to be the jerk that costs their buddies money, you know, people... People party, people have a couple of drinks, you know, you just get quoted sometimes, some way, and some clip will show up. And so again, I think this is an issue that maybe there'll be some sort of a sort of a short term resolution, but I wouldn't be surprised if it if it blows up again at some point. And then the question is, whatever the NBA and Commissioner Silver and the Chinese side have sort of worked out, if assuming they've worked stuff out over the last few days, do they have any sort of a of an understanding about how they deal with the next case like this? So obviously the money is, is a big component of this, but do you think it's a good thing that the NBA is involved in China? I mean, Ben Thompson talked about a little bit, uh, our mutual friend uh, about how, you know, the American kind of soft power, uh, there's some idea that this is backfired. And now, in fact, it's the Americans who are beholden to the Chinese uh, as opposed to having a cultural impact. But, you know, I think the NBA does have a cultural impact. It, just anything that brings, uh, cultures and people closer together, I think that's uh, just, uh, overall a good. But the NBA has had to make compromise. They're probably going to have to continue to make compromise. Do you think it's just a, a good thing that they're in China or, or is it would be better for them to pull out? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a hard question because um, yeah, I mean, you, you know, get into the money, you get into the yeah. Morals. I mean, I, mean, it's I think not, it's I not think an easy on, one. Obviously. On net, I'd much rather have the NBA have a pretty significant presence in China, um, but that it is a problem that the Chinese government has so much leverage. I mean, the NBA, you know, leaving aside these this 
whole issue around Maury's comments, you know, you got to remember the NBA has a development camp, I think that's what they call it, in Xinjiang province, right, which several human rights groups have been criticizing them for for a long time. And the NBA hasn't, you know, hasn't shut it down, right? And so, and they're not unaware of the issues with the with the camps in Xinjiang. So, um, you know, the NBA, cl- clearly, they just want this to be manageable and kind of go away. They obviously want to be there. You know, I think what we're seeing, though, on a broader sense is an increasing backlash in the U.S. and in certainly in D.C., where I am, and in, on Capitol Hill, to all these companies who are having to um, modify or constrain behavior to please the Chinese, um, the Communist Party, and the Chinese government. And you, know, you certainly you see it with Apple, you see it with other big companies, you see it with smaller companies. Um, you know, the NBA uh, and this whole situation, in many ways, was I think kind of a watershed event for awareness of the leverage that um, the China, the Chinese government, has over some. US companies because it's just such a popular um it's just such a popular brand and sport in the US. So, you know, it was on the all the all the top news shows, the evening news, all had stories about this. Whereas when someone like a Marriott or a different company maybe caves to the Chinese over something, it's not it's not that sort of leads the news for through several days. Yeah, I mean people don't really care if uh you know a Taiwanese flag emoji gets removed or or an app from the, the app store gets removed that helps uh, you know people track where the police are in Hong Kong like that just isn't going to get as much traction for whatever reason obviously politicians and No, but you know, the NBA yeah. The, yeah, no and and you know it's and then and then there's going to be a broader discussion about how Hollywood I mean we people have talked about it for a while sort of how Hollywood is censoring to appease Beijing um that's going to um that conversation I think is going to um uh, increase in volume in the near future and you know there's an NBA connection, LeBron James, right? He's he's producing a bunch of movies, as and including the one, the remake of the one with Michael Jordan. What was that movie called? Space Jam. Space Jam too, right? And so yeah. you know what? They're not going to have anything in that movie that's going to upset the Chinese because again, the Chinese for years have been using, um, you know, the Chinese. Film box office is huge. I think second only to the U.S. market, and so these guys, the the Hollywood studios, you know, bend over backwards to make sure that their movies get approved in China because China, there's a limited number of movies for American movies to get approved in China. You know, the approval process involves whether or not there's objectionable content. So you have people in Hollywood pre-censoring to please Beijing. So uh, last question here. I really appreciate your time. This has been a, a fascinating, illuminating conversation uh, for me. But uh, what would your advice be to Adam Silver going forward here? Um, well, so if if he wants the NBA to be able to continue to operate in China, um, I think he he needs to basically, I think, work with the owners. And the owners are the ones who need to, I think, uh, would be the ones who would want to make sure that they're, um, everyone that they're paying on their team um, is towing the line. I'm not saying this, I'm not supporting this, but I'm just saying that yeah. uh, from the perspective, if you're thinking through how the NBA could continue to operate in China, um, you know, because the owners are the ones, obviously, if, you know, there's a salary cap hit, but if, if they lose 15% of their revenue because China's market goes away, then the valuations of all these teams go down, right? So the owners are pissed off too. So, you know, the owners, and frankly, the owners have other interests. I, I think several of the owners have other business interests in China um, that they certainly don't want to be affected. So, um, you know, ultimately, I think that... Um, Commissioner Silver, 
needs to stick to his statement that he made in Tokyo, which again, I thought was given his situation was about as good as you're going to get yeah. from a corporate executive. I, I, I agree with you. Other other than the statement in Mandarin that I really uh, aroused my ire. Yeah, me too. But uh, then the next day, the yeah. next day and, and that. And so so the question goes back to, OK, it's a it's a broader question. He's running, you know, he's running a business. And, you know, does that do you want that business to also be, um, you know, promoting free speech and, and the problem for the NBA particularly is because it has a reputation of, of activist players and coaches for certain issues, they all look hypocritical if they just clam up about China. So back to your original question, um, you know, I, I know there are lots of people trying to give him advice on China. Um, I think that ultimately though, they need to, um, think about what the NBA looks like with a dramatically reduced footprint in China. And, yeah, and I mean, and they got to have a contingency they, right? and focus a lot of efforts on building out more efforts than they already have on building out other markets where they're not going to have these problems or, or they're going to have fewer problems because like we talked about earlier, um, and, and we don't know the answer. It looks like there's some sort of a truce or some sort of resolution, but you know, it's still early days. It's, we could find out in a couple of days or when this podcast airs, it actually the, something else happened to the Chinese government and said, you know what? We're done. We don't want to deal with you guys. Um, but assuming operating on the assumption that there's some sort of, um, some sort of um, agreement or, or, or resolution has been reached. I think that um, they should milk it for all they can while they got it, but but should be under no illusions it's going to pop up again. And like we talked about, you, they got to have a contingency plan for um, where else they're going to find this growth because otherwise they're effectively going to be under a form of um, you know it's basically they're they're going to be hostages to this market even if it's only what is it fifteen percent of the revenue now? Yeah, is that yeah, right? That, that seems um, to be the best estimates. Um, which which is a big number, but yeah, you would they're think, hoping that gets higher. You're hoping that gets higher, but you think that um, principles are worth more than fifteen percent of your business. You would hope. Yeah, it, it, you would. And I mean, and while the NBA certainly is, likes to be this woke league and stuff, there's also the business interests here that are constraining them on the other side. Like they can't go too far for appeasement, or they're going to get killed, as they did uh, for uh, that statement in Mandarin. So other than that, I think they've done absolutely as good of a job uh, as they could have done here uh but you know it still really just uh, raises my ire to see that effectively americans uh, are being censored uh, by the chinese government and it would be nice if there if there were a way around that but i don't necessarily see that happening anytime well soon. i agree and i think on an individual sort of corporate any level that no one can can really deal with that i think ultimately that's something that may rise to sort of a government to government level maybe although you know the statement so far from the president from the secretary of Tre- the secretary the, the treasury secretary this morning on CNBC are basically like that's between the NBA and China. They're not expressing an interest in getting involved. Congress, on the other hand, may be a little more activist, but we'll see what comes out of there. Um, but unless there's more, um, I think, government support, it's going to be very difficult for um, any individual entity, even one that has relatively more leverage than other other entities that's like the NBA. I'm sorry, the, the NBA relatively has more leverage than other entities. They still, they still could be shut down by China, but they relatively have more leverage. But even their relative more leverage is not enough to change fundamentally change this policy because the way the Communist Party is looking at how they want to want to influence and shape global discourse is very very fundamental almost existentially fundamental to um, how they view um, maintaining control and power in China. All right, well, thanks, Bill. This was a uh, fantastic. I, I want to thank you for uh, agreeing to come on with someone you had never ever talked to before uh, on such short notice. But this was a uh, an awesome conversation. If you uh, if you happen to listen to this. Um, 
please uh, send Bill a, a message thanking him. Uh, what is your uh, your Twitter handle, Bill? Uh, it's newbi, N-I-U-B-I. All right. And of course, uh, cynicism.com is, uh, his newsletter. I'm actually going to subscribe to that as soon as we, I'll give you, I'll give you one. And, and it's spelled just if I can, it's S I N O C I S M.com. Awesome. All right. Thanks again. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We'll get you back to our regularly scheduled NBA programming. Talk about the Memphis Grizzlies with Chris Harrington, but I want to tell you about kettlebell kitchen first. They offer the nutrition you need without any of the hassle. I've been doing a keto diet since I got back from my trip across the country and I put on about 15 pounds and Kettlebell Kitchen has been the best solution that I've seen so far to facilitate that. You can either sign up for a plan or you can order a la carte with no long-term contracts required and get meals delivered to your door twice a week for optimal freshness. This is not a meal kit. Everything is put together already. You just heat it up in the microwave, but it tastes really good. It's better than the keto stuff that I've been making myself. And it's not just for keto either. They've got vegetarian, Whole30, paleo options, athlete builder options. My wife has uh, been working out a lot lately, so... That option is formulated for that, and it really tastes good. I, the pesto turkey sausage and scrambled eggs was awesome. Really like their breakfast stuff a lot too. They had these poached eggs and pastrami spiced beef as well, which was really good. It's really just super easy. Two minutes in the microwave, and it's been ready. And I'm eating better than a lot of the food that I'd be cooking at home. And it's really nutritious as well. I mean, the the combination of speed and nutrition to me is unmatched. And again, you can just order a few when you feel like you want to get them. Their packaging is really cool. No styrofoam. And the best part for me even was that I got a free nutritional consult. Shout out to Cav Cellini for that. She was a really friendly, really fun. We talked for about a, a half hour about some of the ways in which I can say maybe not balloon up by 15 pounds the next time I go on a trip. She taught me a lot about intermittent eating as well dispelled some common myths so that's, that's another nice benefit that you, you can get when you sign up with them the way to get started with them once again is kettlebellkitchen.com kettlebell like the weight kettlebellkitchen.com enter that cap space code for 25 dollars off each of your first two orders for new customers feed the champion in you with kettlebell kitchen and get 25 dollars off each of your first two orders at kettlebellkitchen.com and don't forget that cap space code to let them know that you came from us now, time to discuss another team that I, I would probably put maybe in my top five of teams that I had difficulty projecting this year. And because they have a lot of new faces, they have a lot of young players as well. And that's the Memphis Grizzlies. And our intrepid guest, Chris Harrington, is going to help us bring some order to our thoughts about the Memphis Grizzlies. How are you doing, Chris? I'm, I'm doing well, Nate. Thanks for having me on again. I look forward to this every year. Yeah, so, so do I. And so... I guess the place that I want to start here, do you think that anything about last year's performance is relevant to a projection this year? Or should we just throw that out in our discussion? About the only thing that matters from last season going into this season is, you know, what you glean from um, Jaron Jackson Jr. as a rookie. That, that's really about it. Um, there's been almost total change top to bottom. Um, every opening night starter from a year ago was gone. Um, it, depending on what happens with Ivan Rab, it's possible there will only be three players 
on this opening night roster who will, will have been on last season's opening night roster. And so, no, I don't think last season tells us much of it, tells us much of anything. Well, let's talk uh, about Jaron Jackson Jr. in that case, because uh, I think there are a lot of differing opinions on him. The fact that he missed, you know, maybe the last, I think it was 24 games of, of the season with that quad issue kind of had him out of the national consciousness. I think there are most people who were saying around the time he got hurt, maybe that he was even, well, I shouldn't say most people, but there are many people, especially the analytically focused, who thought he was actually the second best rookie around the time he got hurt. Then Trey Young had a massive surge to end the season. He obviously didn't get to fatten up uh, on some of the teams that were in rebuilding mode at the end of the year. Uh, And then they didn't put up a ton of traditional stats. The Grizzlies really got destroyed whenever he was on the floor without another center. Uh, But ultimately, what do you make of Jaron Jackson's rookie year? Do you think he's profiling as, you know, kind of a nice player or are you more along the lines of, hey, this guy might be, you know, a future star, if not superstar? Well, I mean, I think you have to take into account that he was the youngest rotation player in the NBA last season. He was the second youngest player overall behind, you know, Isaac Bonga with the Lakers who didn't really play. And so he did everything at age 19, and you also have to take into account that unlike the other four players who are top five picks and on the all-rookie team, he's a defense-first player, um, not an offense-first player. And so the fact that he that his three-point shooting translated to the NBA, that he was ahead of schedule, I think, as a low-post player um, and, and looked good off the bounce, his offense was, as a whole, I think ahead of where people expected it to be. I think at least should have reasonably expected it to be. And that's not his, that's not necessarily his calling card. I think he projects as an all NBA defender. And so to me, what's special about, and I do think he has a chance to be special. What's special about him is that diversity of skills that, that he, he looks like a player who he may not be your, your, your top option offensively on a good team, the way a Luka Doncic or a Trey Young will be. He looks like he can be an all NBA defender who scores 20 points a night. Like, and there just aren't that many of those and has the versatility to play the four and to play the five. And because of his versatility, sort of opens up in what you can do as a team. Like there's no, he, he doesn't limit you in any way. I mean, it's all allowances with him. You can play almost any style with him. You, you can play with almost any set of teammates. And so I think as a building block, having a big man who's a two-way player who allows you to play almost any way you want to play, traditional or pace and space or whatever, I mean, I think he's a great building block to have. I think he'll be a multi-time all-star. You know, I don't know if he'll ever be a top 10 player in the league, but I think he'll be an all-star. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I mean, I think maybe if he's not an all-star, it's because of the reason that some of his skills are more difficult to appreciate than perhaps uh, the casual fan is going to see. And also just because, you know, since time immemorial, it's been hard to make the all-star game in the Western Conference than the Eastern Conference. Right. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm pretty much in agreement with you there. Um, can you just give, give me a quick breakdown of him? Let's start with his offensive game as far as where he's at and where he might be able to take steps forward this year you know he's got a little bit of a funky release um on his shot but it went in he shot you know more than better than 35 percent from three last season um he he was he was able to shoot off the dribble even from deep a little bit better than i people expected he memorably hit, hit a game winner over lebron off the dribble um in a game against the lakers he was ahead of schedule and i don't know how much you'll see this with the system changes but he was really ahead of schedule as a low post player he scored a lot on the block um, partly that was he, he was defended by power forwards playing with Marcus All, and he had great entry passer in Marcus All. But there was a lot of high low action. He was really good on the block last season. 
Um, the question for him is more what can he do off the dribble, sort of the in-between game? Can he score as an ISO? But I think it's a guy who can who can spot up, spread the floor. He'll hit trail threes. Um, he, he can he can finish on the break. He can finish, you know, off off pick and roll. Um, and you guys got a point guard now is going to deliver him the ball. I think he's a guy who can get, you know, with, with the minutes he's going to get, he, he he's a guy who can get you 20 a game just in the flow without really running anything for him or featuring him. And so I think, you know, he looks like a guy who's like a number two offensive player on a good team down the line, but I think he's a good number two. Um, you know, he, he's a guy who as a complimentary um, offensive player to, to a good guard, which hopefully John Moran is, I, I think he's going to be, you know, uh, I think he'll be a 20-point-a-game player. I don't think he'll ever be a 25-point-a-game player. I don't think he's like Carl Anthony Towns or anything. But I think he he will, at his peak, be a 20-point-a-game guy just getting it in the flow. Yeah, I'll echo a lot of what you said. I mean, I think his, his post-game is relatively rudimentary. His drive game is relatively rudimentary, as you might expect for someone, as you mentioned, one of the youngest players in the NBA. You know, really needs to work on going to his right, finishing over his left shoulder in addition to his right shoulder. Even as a right-handed player, he really loves the left-handed hook shot. Um, and part of the limitation in his game, too, is just because he's got that low function release i actually like that a little bit from outside he can get it off quickly but he can't really shoot any kind of turnaround jump shot with that kind of a release he'll just get it blocked uh, so that kind of puts a little bit of a limit on his scoring around the basket and he's not quite your nuclear athlete i mean he can go up and get an alley-oop if it's right at the rim but he's not going to take it above the square and really dunk on you you know i think he can be a solid pick and roll center but not if, if he eventually does become a center that's something to talk about too no his athleticism is more about length and yeah, timing yeah. than explosiveness certainly he is not a bagley or even an Aiton in that regard but i will note he's gotten bigger yeah. um he said on media that the grizzlies have not released official measurements yet you know they're doing yeah, they, they, they're required now to do the new measurements but Jackson said on media day, he said he'd just come out of the training room and he'd measured 6'11 in socks, and that's about an inch and a quarter higher than he measured at the draft combine. Um, he looks physically, as you would expect, a guy goes from 19 to 20. Like, he's still developing physically. So he looks bigger. He looks stronger. He's never going to be an explosive athlete, but he's, he he can play easily above the rim. I think he is going to catch lobs. He's going to dunk. Um but you're right that 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 you know at the highest level of the playoff basketball when you need to create a shot it's not clear he's going to be the guy you can just give the ball to and create a shot he may be dependent on shot creation elsewhere which is i think what part of what makes it makes people in memphis think that you know he and john morant will pair together so well and that john morant's game might help elevate jaron jackson jr's game yeah and i think the other thing that i'm just so excited about with him that i think actually i want to get your opinion on this uh but i i thought i just wanted to see him shoot more three-pointers last year i mean when, that first summer league game was just so eye-opening i think he was shot eight out of 13 on threes in that first summer league game against the hawks he was just bombing them from everywhere shooting it just incredibly fast not even having his feet set and you know obviously you're not going to shoot eight out of 13 but just to get up the 13 three-point attempts and it seemed like there might have been a little bit of a mandate almost sort of like with a carl anthony towns at kentucky that hey you know what? no we want to actually get you focusing a little bit 
bit more on your play around the basket get you tougher jb bickerstaff has a reputation as that old school kind of coach did you sense that from the organization that they were trying to work on that with him last year for for good or for ill and uh that he could have maybe done more from the three-point line with uh, a different emphasis no no i think that's true I, I don't know if they ever quite said that explicitly but there was the sense that they were trying to develop that post game with him develop that, that game closer to the basket and there were certainly not an emphasis if not an emphasis put on him as a volume three-point shooter i think that's about to change i think we'll get into this but in terms of system and style changes it's going to be a radical change um in memphis this year in terms of coaching perspective and the kind of what they try to do offensively and so i'll be surprised if his his three-point volume doesn't boost significantly in year two so we've spent a lot of time talking about his offense that's easier to talk about sometimes defensively certainly great timing pretty good feet as a switch guy um but maybe we can talk instead uh, you know i think everyone agrees he has the potential to be a game-changing defender but what does he need to work on uh, on that end quickly here well I mean, he's got to get physically stronger and, and that that'll that's already happening and that, that will happen as, as he grows into his body um you know as he gets stronger he will he'll be able to hold his ground a little bit better i mean i think he's a great weak side shot blocker already um but in terms of defending one-on-one in the post against the bigger centers, that that will get better over time. I think he can. He's certainly shown as a rookie, and and some of what we saw in the summer in the in the, the select team game, like he can get knocked off his spot. Um, that hopefully will improve as he gets stronger. Um, I think he's going to be a guy who can defend. You know, maybe not one through five all players, but I think he'll be able to switch onto a lot of perimeter players. At least hold his own. At least slow him down. And, and I think, you know, I think I think it's just going to take reps there. I, I think I think with defense, so much of it is not just your physical building, your instincts, but also just learning, you know, in the NBA context. And so I think it'll take time. But but I think he's going to be a versatile defender who can who can you know at least against bigger perimeter players and you know in, in terms of um, slowing down guards in pick and roll settings and stuff like that. I think he's going to be effective. Um, you know. He's going to have a lot of versatility defensively, I think. So you mentioned guarding other centers. He is not slated to be the starting center this year. This is Jonas Valanciunas. They traded for him. Then they re-signed him to starter money for three years. Three years, $45 million for Valanciunas. Jackson, I presume, profiles as the starting power forward. They don't really have much of an established quality backup center behind Valanciunas. So is the plan going to be they start together, they play the first six minutes, and then Jaron will come in, play some backup center, and you know we'll see what see what we see uh, when it comes to the closing lineup as far as what the opponent is doing. I, I've asked you know the new coach Taylor Jenkins. I've asked him that about staggering their minutes. He's been noncommittal about it. That is what I suspect will be the case. Um, Jonas Valanciunas has not played in preseason, and he won't play in preseason with a sore foot. Um, they're still hopeful he'll be able to go on opening night, and, and Jenkins has named him a starter. Um, but we haven't had a sneak preview of, of, of how that rotation might go because Valanciunas has not played in the preseason. So in the preseason, Jackson has started at center next to Brandon Clark, and they've played small um, whenever Jackson's down on the floor. They've played um, either Clark or Bruno Caboclo as a backup center, and they've been experimenting with that sort of smaller lineups off the bench. Um, but I do suspect that, you know, if everyone's healthy in, in the season, that they will stagger minutes. Um, to me, it, it, you, you almost have to do that. If, if Alan Judas is going to be your starter um, and you want to st- develop Jackson as a center down the line, to me, you have to stagger their minutes to get Valanciunas his minutes and get Jackson time at center. Um, and so even though they're intrigued by, you know, Bruno Caboclo's small ball center, I, I got to think over the course of 48 minutes when you have Jackson and Valanciunas available, they'll, they'll sort of share that time. 
All right, so now let's talk a little bit about the number two overall pick. John Morant did not see him, much to my dismay in Summer League, because not that I was worried about him, but just because I really wanted to see the guy because his film was some of the best passing, some of the most exciting play that I recall ever seeing from a a prospect. So uh, what's his status now coming back uh, from that knee injury? I guess we can start there. Is he full go going into the season? Yeah, yeah, he's played both preseason games. The Grizzlies held him out of um of anything like he didn't even do open gym like you know stuff with with teammates he didn't play at all until training camp started but that was a that was by the grizzlies request strictly precautionary he's been full go ever since and you know i have to say i there there are tons of questions about him and we can get into that there's questions about his shooting about his defense about his finishing seeing him in person and i saw him in college i watched five or six games i thought he was the second best prospect in the draft i think i had a good handle on what he was good at you know his strengths and weaknesses but seeing him in person for the first time like i watched mike conley up close for 10 years and morant may never be as good of an all-around player as conley like only time will tell on that but in terms of combination athleticism and skill level with the ball it it was almost it was it it you could it was almost physical um how how sort of startling Morant was it was exciting in a way that like Conley never was in terms of just specifically in terms of his handle his vision his passing and his quickness like there's just an electric quality to him with the ball that 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 was pretty pretty special now whether the rest of the game comes around to match that you know that that remains to be seen but but his skill level and athleticism is is pretty off the charts Oh, yeah. I mean, and, you know, I think some people have seen some big dunks from him on highlights and but you know the casual fan didn't really see him at all until the ncaa tournament maybe there's city oh you know he's one of these pretty athletic point guards you know but i mean the handle and the passing are just otherworldly i mean you see just some of the dribble moves that he has just like those quick behind the backs when you're not expecting it, it just like one of the most creative handles and now you know he's really got to tighten up for sure i mean the turnovers were insane last year but uh just the creativity in his handle is just you know one of the best best i've ever seen from a prospect and so is his passing I mean, he could throw every pass both hands lobs uh just a great pick and roll craft i just i was wowed by it and it, i mean how does he look just in these first couple of preseason games i know one of them was against uh i think it was maccabi haifa both their games actually have been against yeah. non-nba teams right right the other was against the breakers yeah. he went head-to-head with Hampton, which wasn't much of a duel in, in that game um he he has been he's been electric with the ball um the thing is i like that the, the second game against the breakers the first five minutes were just mesmerizing watching him and the passes he was throwing and, and the way he was breaking down a defense but then that, as the game went on you started to realize that it was like he was going for a highlight assist every single time down the floor and, and it almost felt like, you know, because he can do spectacular things, he, he felt like I'm going to try to do something spectacular in every possession. And that ended up not being as effective. So I think that's going to be a learning process for him in terms of, you know, Taylor Jenkins has said like they, they want to let him go, they put them on his hands, they, they want him to go full throttle, and then they'll dial him back over time. But, but they, they, they want him to be pushing the envelope as a player. And so he's got to be able to modulate that. Um, and we'll, we'll see how that works over time. But he has, it was almost more, you know, we had Jason Williams here in Memphis early on when the Grizzlies first moved here. And it all, it was more Jay Will than Mike Conley. And just in terms of the anticipation of what is this guy going to do with the ball, um, his ability to, to find open shooters with skip passes and, and cross court passes is his ability to penetrate and, and just find the, just a sliver of space for a guy for a dump off or a lob, um, I mean, it was, you felt like you couldn't take your eyes off of him because something spectacular might happen any moment. And, you know, that has upside and downside. And so we'll see how his game evolves. 
But he was, I think everyone who saw him in person those first two games came away feeling a lot better. A lot of the mystery was removed just in terms of, is he as talented with the ball as he looked like in college? And the answer is yes. Again, the rest of his game, there are more questions. But in terms of skill level with the ball, it's all there. Jason Williams, to me, is a really interesting comparison and one that I hadn't thought of before. But in terms of the flair, I think that might be a pretty reasonable one as far as what to expect now. I think Jock could be a much better scorer. He's a much better athlete than Jason was. Uh, Looking at his tape, I thought that he was atrocious defensively. Where is he at at this point? Right. I mean, he, he was such a non-combatant at Murray State. And part <laughs> yeah, of that that's was a great level. That's a great way to put it, a non-combatant. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, his usage level was so high offensively that it felt like he just took took the other possessions off. I didn't, I mean, I didn't see every game he played. I think I watched five of those games, and that's sort of the sense that I had. Um, his, usage, his usage level might be pretty high in Memphis, too. I mean, it, it seemed like, at least in these first games, he's, he was dictating the outcome of pretty much every possession, and we'll see how that evolves over time. Um my feeling with him defensively is he's got decent size, not great size, he's 6'3", 6'6", wingspan. Um, he's obviously a great athlete in terms of quickness. Um, if he gets stronger and he puts in the effort, he should be able to be decent defensively. Now, the problem is that he may always be a one-position one, one position defender, and that may limit what they can do. That may, might make him easier to hunt um, against teams that don't have to have a small guard on the floor. And so, I, you know, I, I think there's probably a ceiling to what he can be defensively. But, you know, it, compared to someone like Trey Young, you know, last year as, you know, the top point guard in that class, I think he will start higher than that and he'll always be higher than that. But I, but I don't think it will ever be a strength of his game. And I, I know, I don't know that he has. Even if he matches up physically with with the, you know Mike Conley, I don't think he has that sort of an, an inherent demeanor and sort of nose for the ball that Conley came into the league with. And so I, I suspect it will always be a weakness of his. But he's got the ability as he gets stronger, at least to maybe to be a league average defender at, at the point. But I don't know if he'll ever be better than that. So if I were going to guess what his stats are, and feel free to uh, quibble here if you see differently, I'm thinking like you know 51, 52 percent true shooting. Like I think it's going to be really tough for him to be above average efficiency this year. I think he's going to be average over eight assists a game. Like it wouldn't shock me if. He he gets over 10 assists a game in this first year. Um, and, you know, maybe like 32% from three-point range. I think he's probably, he'll have some big dunks, but he's probably going to struggle to shoot it at the rim. You think that's a reasonable projection, or you think you might you see it a little differently there? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty high on his assist numbers. 10 seems seems like a lot. I don't, not many people get up to that yeah. anymore. Just because there's um, nobody but, else. That's my thinking. It's yeah, just like no, I, nobody I think, else on the team can run a pick and roll. I think they're going to be very dependent on their point guards to create shots for people, both, both John Moran and Tyus Jones. So I I think I think those two players are going to have very high assist totals relative to their playing time um, because they're both really good passers. And I think the team is going to need them to create shots for other people. Um, I do think Morant will be, you know, top 10, you know, in terms of assist average, I think he'll be top 10 in the league um, around eight. This sounds about right to me. I think he'll be a double digit scorer, like, you know, on a per game basis, but I don't think the efficiency will be great. And I, I'll be surprised if he cracks 15, you know, 12, 13 points a game, 14, maybe with middling efficiency sounds about right. The shooting is a real mystery. I mean, I mean, it was, it was something, you know, when you watch him in college, um, his three point shooting got better from year one to year two, both in terms of frequently and free frequency and effectiveness. And that was a good sign. He was a good free throw shooter, which, you know, as you know, tends to be a better indicator sometimes um, over 80%. 
Um, but he's got sort of a slow gather and sort of a low release. Um, it almost looks almost a little like a set shot, even off the dribble. Yeah. And there's a real question about how that's going to translate against NBA defenses. Um, he hasn't played against an NBA defense yet. He's only, so as we're talking, he's, he's played two preseason games against um, international teams. Um, he was going up against a guy named Gregory Vargas. He's going up against Norris Cole. He's going up against the RJ Hampton. So these are not NBA point guards. Um, and he, he, he attempted three, he's attempted in his first two preseason games, he's attempted three jump shots, one three pointer. So we just don't have a lot to go on on this. I, I talked to Taylor Jenkins about it, about whether the Grizzlies thought his mechanics are going to have to change, evolve, you know, speed up against NBA defenses. And they basically said the answer was essentially maybe, but we're not worried about that right now. That might be a next summer project. We just want him to be aggressive and to be confident and to go out and shoot the ball. And we will we'll sort of evaluate it over the course of this rookie season and see if we think you know he needs to adjust as a shooter. But I think there's a real question about how good of a shooter he can be at the NBA level. He's clearly got the touch if you look at you know the, the, the free throw shooting. But but his his mechanics are not the kind of mechanics you know you see from the top guards in the league. Yeah, I'm most worried about his ability to get his shot off in mid range. I think, like you said, the the touch seems decent, but the versatility of that jump shot, uh, his ability to rise up and and shoot over the top, and and that may just require some surgery. I mean, he may just end up taking a different shot from three point range than he takes from the mid range, and he may have to just uh, work on that. And especially with today's NBA defenses calculated to give up that shot i mean he's eventually going to need that as a counter but i don't expect that like you to be there uh in year one let's talk about another prominent addition who probably really just has not been discussed very much at all uh and that's taylor jenkins who comes over from mike budenholzer's system uh with the milwaukee bucks you mentioned there are going to be some system changes he is uh a bit of a departure in many ways from jb bickerstaff so what's uh what are some of the core tenets that he's been preaching here uh, on both ends well he's talked about bringing he's talked about bringing some of those principles you know from milwaukee and then from atlanta before that where he was with mike budenholzer and and to the degree that, that he can implement that, it's just so radically different from not just J.B. Bickerstaff, but really the past decade of Grizzlies basketball. I mean, in terms of in terms of style, in terms of in terms of you know, um, in terms of the kind of shot selection. I was looking at some stats earlier today, like just comparing Milwaukee last season to Memphis last season. Obviously, qualitatively, that's a huge difference. But just in terms of like how they were playing, right? I mean, Milwaukee was fifth in pace. The Grizzlies were dead last. Um, Milwaukee was third in three point frequency. The Grizzlies were nineteenth. Um, the Grizzlies were eighth in post ups. Milwaukee was twenty first. Grizzlies were sixth in paint touches. Milwaukee was twenty seventh. The Grizzlies, as always, when with Marcus Hall, were first in elbow touches. Milwaukee was the last. Hmm. It's just such radically different style of play offensively, and you know, and and they're really he's really preaching that pace and space, despite you know the limited shooting ability this team has. He, he really wants to focus on building a culture and building a system beyond just this season. And so he's, you know, the, the Grizzlies practice court now, they, they, they put blue, five blue boxes around the, around the, the arc, you know, two in the corners and three up top, and they're getting people to run to the blocks, um, a lot more five out. It's been, you know, it's common in the NBA, but it's weird to watch Grizzlies games and see the middle of the floor completely open, like, like everyone yeah. around the, the three-point line. We're, we're just so used to seeing not only low-post play, but like high-low, like the Gasol to Zebo, the Gasol to Jackson. We're seeing two two guys around the block, and we're seeing no one around the block. Um, so he's really preaching, get out fast, run to your spots, you know, attack the rim early, and then spread the floor, and everyone shoots threes. Um 
and you know maybe other than Brandon Clark, although he shot some in summer league. But like basically everyone else, like yeah, I watched you know Jonas Valanciunas hasn't played yet, but in his pregame workouts, he's shooting threes now. Um, you know whether he can follow in the Mark Gasol, you know um, Brook Lopez mold remains to be seen. I, I, I'm doubtful, but but they're trying, and so and so you know they're really. I think the Grizzlies' shot selection is going to modernize dramatically this season. Um, how effective that is with the personnel they have is a different matter. But Jenkins is trying to build a system not just for this season. It's for for not just for the roster he, he has, but the roster he's going to have over time. Um, and so you're going to see a radically different style of basketball in Memphis. Yeah. Uh, anything defensively uh, that he's been focusing on? It's It's been harder to get a handle on that. Um and partly with Valanciunas being out, we haven't seen like how they're going to function defensively with two true bigs on the floor, which is what they're going to the way they're going to start. Um, there doesn't seem to be much switching going on, um, less so than 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 we've seen. I know obviously Milwaukee sort of you know was notable last season for having an elite defense that gave up a lot of three point shots, which is sort of counterintuitive. Um, I just think it's too early um, at this point. I don't have a great feel for yeah. what they're going to be defensively. Yeah, and I think they could put out some really nice switching lineups. I mean, with yeah, uh, uh, with I mean, person. yeah, other than the point guards, um, for sure. No, you've got I mean, Jaron Jackson. Brandon Clark is made for that. I mean, if he's going to be, you know, sort of an elite role player, it's going to be in part because of that. Um, Kyle Anderson has had his shoulder stuff, but Kyle Anderson to me is a, is probably the best perimeter defender on the team and a guy who can guard multiple spots. Jay Crowder, probably a little overrated defensively, but still, you know, a versatile defender. Bruno Caboclo is a guy who can guard, you know, both, you know, wings and, and some bigs. And so they, they do have a lot of that versatility. Yeah. Andre Iguodala, you know, comes from a switching system. He can fit <laughs> right. right in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We won't, we won't be seeing him on the, on the next time he plays on the FedEx forum floor, it will be in a Lakers uniform or a Clippers uniform or, or something like that. Yeah. No, but yeah, I, I, I'm really excited to see that. I mean, this is a team and that was part of what was so difficult for me in projecting them, which we'll talk, talk about later. It's just, you know, what these guys, going to look like defensively i thought there's a chance they could actually be okay uh on that end they are going to be they're going to be worth last season they were 27th on offense and ninth on defense at least by the way nba.com tracks it um they're going to be worse defensively but i think they got a pretty good chance to be in the middle third of the league not the bottom third yeah um they won't be ninth but I, i i think they have the personnel despite their youth to be decent you know average to close to average defensively I don't know how much better they'll be, if any, than 27th offensively. Like that, that may be your over under for them. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's going to be tough. We, we can we can hit on how this overall group fits together a, a little bit later. Um, so let's see here. Yeah, I guess the other major newcomer would be Brandon Clark. Give me maybe a, a minute or so on what you've seen from him so far. Um, he's looked good, uh, especially on the boards. Um, he's he looks. You know, we've gotten a sort of a preview of coming attractions with him and and, and Jaron playing together without Valanciunas out there. That may be the front court pairing of the future for the Grizzlies. Um, he's looked like um, a good defender, good rebounder. Um, you know, a guy who can who, who's with his hops, he's going to be able to finish stuff around the basket on putbacks on on you know a good lob target, um, dump off target for John Morant. Um, you know, to me, he looks like a role player. Like I, I, I was high on him in the draft. I was not as high on him as his more ardent supporters in the, you know, the NBA and the wilds of the NBA. Like I didn't think he was a top five prospect or anything like that. Um, but to me, he was probably a lottery level prospect, and and I think particularly a good fit with Jaron Jackson Jr. and John Morant. Like, it seems if he pans out, he's a really good fit as a role player around those two players. 
and I think he'll play a lot this season. He'll be the third big, essentially, behind Jaron and, and, and Jaron Jackson and Jonas Valanciunas. I think he pairs great with Jaron Jackson. I'm not sure how well he'll be able to play with Jonas Valanciunas, and that will be interesting to see yeah. if they can really those two together. Um, you know, and I'm not convinced his shooting's going to come along at the NBA level. We'll see. Um, but but I, I think he, he certainly looks promising so far. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. Um, can we talk a little bit about this Josh Jackson seg? I mean, I, I never expected him to really figure with this team uh, on the floor because, you know, he's really struggled his first couple of years. I didn't particularly care for him as a prospect. He can't shoot. He's a big usage guy, uh, obviously has had some personal issues. But it really seemed uh, your colleague uh, Amari Sankofa's report, and I apologize if you had, had something on this as well that I missed it, saying that basically he's going to start the season in the G League. He hasn't even been around camp and that, right. you know, he might not even make the team potentially, uh, but he he could be brought back later. Uh, what's what's going on there? Maybe I misread his his report there in no, terms of not making the team. No, but. no that I mean, I mean, at this point, it seems like he will make the 15-man roster when the season starts. He just won't be with the Grizzlies. He'll be with the G League Memphis Hustle. Um, when they when that trade happened, um, Josh Jackson was sort of the the initial headline of the trade because you know former top five pick, what, you know. But what became clear was Phoenix made that trade to get off of Josh Jackson's contract, oh, for sure. and the Grizzlies and the Grizzlies took that contract, you know, as the cost of the business they really wanted to do, which was to get the Anthony Mountain and to get one second round pick and potentially two second round picks, you know, depending on how the protections work out. And so the Grizzlies did not make that trade to get Josh Jackson. But they made the trade, and you have them, you have a decision to make. Um, I think what they determined is, you know, it's a sunk cost. Either we're paying him to be a member of our team or we're going to pay him to go away. Let's at least, you know, given where we at, we're at in our rebuilding process, it prob- it, we should do the due diligence of taking a look at him. Given his problems, they weren't comfortable bringing him into the locker room with this young team immediately. And so they agreed with, with him, with, with his representation, that he would stay out of training camp. He would start the season as a roster player for the Grizzlies, but start the season with the G League Memphis Hustle. And it's basically a go prove yourself as much off the court as on the court. Like prove you can be a good teammate, prove you can be good in the locker room. Um, and if you know you have a chance to convince us you're worth bringing up and putting in our locker room and giving you a chance with the Grizzlies, and either he will do that or he won't. And if he won't, I suspect they'll just buy him out at some point. But it, it seems certain at this point they will carry him into the season on the roster, and I have to assume it's probably certain at this point they will not pick up his option for 2021. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm going to guess that if he's not worth starting the season with the team, they may not want to pay him $8.9 right. million next year, especially in a season where they could have some cap space. I'm not expecting it's a big free agent score but you know that they they could get in the restricted free agent market uh, they could also uh, potentially get into the bad money derby uh, again this season so yeah i mean that that ultimately now they would have if he did actually work out okay this season uh he would have they would have up to 8.9 million that they could pay him if they wanted to bring him it, back and, I, and it's hard to imagine him working out to the point that anyone's gonna pay him more than that given his track record right and so there's not yeah. much risk there yeah exactly. um you know but there th- this is a full-on re- build the development season um it's funny you go you know a lot of teams will will, will put their put what, what they believe like up on the wall um in the players area like the famous you know spurs pounding the rock thing 
And the Grizzlies have had variations on, you know, grit and grind and toughness and all this. And I noticed the last game I was leaving, I was going through the, the back corridors, basically the same hallway the players take is when they go from the parking lot to the locker room. And there's a new thing up on the wall. Uh, it's a Grizzlies logo, and it says, compete together, get better. And that's all this season is about for the Grizzlies. And so, you know, for them – you got a roster spot decision to make, but you know if you're if deciding between Josh Jackson and Miles Plumley or Josh Jackson and Ivan Rab at this point, it's probably worth taking a little bit of a longer look at Josh Jackson if there's any chance he's going to be anything for you. Yeah, it really seems like because they've got 17 contracts. Kabaklo has three three hundred thousand guaranteed out of his one point right. eight million. Uh, that's not guaranteed, but you know, I think they. It seems like from what you're saying, and I agree, they should probably want to keep him. He, he showed some signs with them, so it yeah, really seems like one of, or, or I'm sorry, two of Plumley, Rab, and Jackson are going to have to go. Is that where they're at at this or point? So, or Solomon Hill. Solomon Hill oh, is yeah. a similar spot to Plumley. Those are the two contracts they basically broke. Chandler Parsons' big expiring contract into two mid-size expiring contracts in Plumlee and Hill, with the idea being like those you know twelve million dollar expirings might be more interesting trade chips later in the season than one big you know twenty five million. But given the roster crunch, they may have to eat one of those or yeah. potentially even both. My my guess today, and I don't know what they're going to do, but if I had to guess. I think they, it would be Plumlee and Rab who would go, and they'd keep Solomon Hill as a veteran guy in the locker room and then a $12 million expiring that they could potentially use if the opportunity comes up. So let's see. Where do I want to go next here? Um, is there anything about this team, which uh, you know has probably been perpetually undercover, but especially now with the end of the, the grit and grind era, but to the extent a national narrative exists about this team, is there anything – that you look at that maybe people aren't realizing about this team right now or that's been undercovered in your mind? Well, I mean, everything's so new. I think we're all trying to figure it out together, yeah. and that includes front office and the coaches. Uh, the one thing I guess I would say in that regard is something we've already talked about a little bit, and that is that there's this assumption, I think, particularly among like the national NBA media, that Jaron Jackson Jr. has to be a center. And I think that's probably ultimately true. I do not. I, I agree with the Grizzlies. That does not need to be true today. Um, he, he just turned 20 a few weeks ago. He's still growing into his body. He had a he had a very high foul rate as a rookie that he needs to bring down. I mean, this, they're taking sort of a long view with this, and I don't think you know I, I don't think he necessarily needs to be taking the pounding of a Joel Embiid and a Nikola Jokic and all that next season. I, I think they can evolve over time to what he's going to be. And I think ultimately center probably is his primary position down the line. But I also think his, his greatest attribute is his versatility. And having him as the centerpiece of your front court will allow you to have different looks. You can play big if you want to play big. You can play small if you want to play small. And if you have the right – to me, the answer to who's the best player to play with Jaron Jackson in the front court is optionality. It's not necessarily one person. And so to me, I would – I think they're right to ease him into being a center, but they're also right to be able to take advantage of that versatility permanently. I mean, going forward. And so I don't think they need to lock him into that position right now. Yeah. I think also with this roster where you don't necessarily have, I, I mean, uh, and especially with just the lack of talent that they have overall, at least in terms of established talent, Valanciunas is a solid player, especially when you consider right. how bad this offense projects to be. I and mean, he's probably their best offensive player this year, you know? And, and so, I mean, obviously 
winning is not the priority this season but and it's not like you know paying him maybe three million dollars a year more than he's worth he was a free agent you maybe have to overpay in the situation that you're in uh but you know he's a quality starting center he's got some defensive limitations uh, i understand that but he's a a, a decent post-up guy really good on the offensive glass which could be a strength for them this year and you know he's one of the more efficient role men in basketball kind of like an ennis cancer who's not as terrible defensively as far as being a role man so um yeah i mean he yeah. also he just starts seven so you're you're getting his prime it's a contract that is a little high, I think, relative to market, but it is a decline. Since so it's a declining contract, it's only three years, and so it comes up before you have to pay the second contract on Jaron Jackson Jr. And so I think he can help you now in terms of putting a more competitive team on the floor. Um, they like him in the locker room. Um, I think because I think he could, he, you know, he sort of evolved into a platoon player in Toronto, and I think he can he could probably evolve back into a platoon player in Memphis. That could happen over the course of that contract. But, you know, he's productive. He's relatively young. The contract is, because it declines, it's not crazy. He could still be a trade chip. Like, that. that is not, if he stays healthy, that's not an untradeable contract. Yeah, I mean, I, I worry about him at the highest levels, you know, which I think is part of why Toronto wanted to move on from him right. defensively. But, you know, as we know, it's a long time before the Grizzlies have those types of, of concerns. So, um, any other interesting lineup playing time issues uh, that you think Taylor Jenkins you have to sort out this year? I mean, we haven't mentioned a lot of the players on this roster yet, so this might be a time. Yeah, I mean, we haven't mentioned it. a lot of the we haven't mentioned a lot of the wings. The wings aren't very mentionable. Um, he, he's <laughs> announced, you know, John, John Morant, Jared Jackson Jr., Jonas Valanciunas. Those are three starters. I mean, we know Tyus Jones will back up John Morant. We know, I think, we know Brandon Clark's the third big. The wing is where it's totally unsettled. Um, he has not named starters on the wing. The default combo right now is Dylan Brooks and Jay Crowder. I think Jay Crowder will, Crowder will almost certainly start at the three when the season, regular season starts. Whether he'll, he will remain a Grizzly all season is a different story. I think it's an open competition at the two. I mean, you have Dylan Brooks, who had a good rookie season two years ago, um, only played 18 games due to the injuries last season. He's trying to get his career back on track ahead of his own free agency a year from now. You have Grayson Allen, who's getting, I think, a great second chance for him after sort of a you know a rough rookie season in Utah. Um, you've got De'Anthony Mountain, who I think was miscast as a starting point guard in in Phoenix, and maybe have, may, have, may have a pathway to playing time as more of a three and D two guard. And you have Marko Gudurić, who they imported from Serbia, who was a you know a sharpshooter in Europe. We'll see if this game translates. But it's sort of an open competition among those four players for the starting two and for like rotation roles. Um, off the bench and the Grizzlies are really just trying to find if anyone can stick like are any of those four players going to be someone you can keep long term with a Jaron Jackson and John Morant yeah Gudurich to me from afar I haven't watched him that closely but just because of his skill set as probably being the most established shooter there uh and you know maybe because also just Grayson Allen kind of I'm more familiar with him I'm just not quite buying him uh so far right. and he seems like more of a more of a bench guy with his skill set as well and, and his size as kind of a combo off the bench um but he seems like at least in terms of skill set to get some shooting on the floor which uh, as you mentioned Jenkins values he seems like he could be the guy who makes the most sense there but the most organizational equity seems like it's uh tied up uh in Dylan Brooks and they do need someone you know Brooks maybe seems like he's the best ball handler of that group and they do need one other guy who can attack off the dribble other than Ja. Yeah, I mean, the thing with with Brooks is that he he, he these preseason games he's been trying a little too hard um, to create with the ball. Um, he's a guy who can he can attack a closeout, he can get in the lane, he can he can draw contact and get a shot off, he can pull up, he can hit from mid range. 
he can do a little bit with the ball. Sometimes he tries to do too much. He tends to have a little bit of an outsized perception of what his game is. Yeah. And try, trying to modulate that, I, I, I think, is, is is important. With Grayson Allen, I agree. Like, we'll see. I mean, he's been good in, in a couple preseason games. Neither of them were against NBA teams. It's two preseason games. But Taylor Jenkins is really Taylor Jenkins basically played him at point guard in the fourth quarter of both of those games. They, they are they are giving Grayson Allen like an open road to to try to try to prove himself. Um, he he didn't shoot well as a rookie from three point range, but his shot looks good. Um, gets good elevation, good form. He's a really good athlete. He can play above the rim. He can he he can cram on a guy. He can block shots at the rim. He's sort of a sneaky, explosive athlete. I, I don't know if he'll ever be more than average at best defensively. Um, but I, I have not been a believer in him. But but seeing him up close made me a little bit more intrigued, just because his potential combination of shooting and ability to pressure the rim offensively with his athleticism. Um, you know, can he be a consistent shooter and can he just be consistent overall? Like, obviously, there's the temperament questions with him. Um, I'm not ready to buy in on him, but I, I'm sort of interested in seeing more. Another thing I think we might see, too, is Tyus Jones and Ja playing together. I mean, they played a lot of money for Tyus Jones and let uh, Deion right. Wright go as well. Wright was a better defensive fit with Ja, though obviously has a, some, some shooting limitations. Jones also shot it very poorly last year, but had been pretty solid in previous years. So, uh, and again, I think Jones is the most established ball handler uh, among those guys, just the most established overall NBA player, has the biggest salary. So it seems to me like they didn't bring him in to play 15 minutes a night behind John Morant. No, and that'll be interesting to see if that works. We, we, we've only seen a couple minutes of that so far in preseason. They haven't used that a lot yet. But you're right, just in terms of getting your best players on the floor and in terms of where, where your investments are, the idea of those two playing together was, to me, one of the biggest reasons of skepticism about the signing. Because I do think DeLon Wright makes more sense as sort of that third guard role and, and sort of pairing with Morant. I think what they saw in Tyus Jones is someone, I think they valued not his fit, but his skill set and his temperament. I think they see his 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 ability to as a passer as something that can help develop the other players in a way that like a Delon Wright wasn't going to, that he can aid the development of some of these young bigs um, by playing with him. And that even though he's young himself, he's a little bit of an old soul. And that he would sort of set a good example in terms of the, how to play the point guard position in the NBA for for John Morant, and I think he's bought in. Even though he's only 23, I think he's bought into that idea that he's sort of he's here to help develop some of these other players as well. And I think they saw his skill set as better developmentally on the floor in the practice court than than you know beyond just you know impacting games himself this season. Where's Kyle Anderson fit into this mix now? They signed him to a full mid level restricted free agent offer sheet uh just one summer ago but now the coaching change the management change uh yeah how's he gonna fit in here he seems like a little bit of an odd man out it, it, it's a real it, first he has to get healthy um so that's the first part he he had um he had um i'm gonna i'm gonna mispronounce thoracic her. outlet decompression surgery okay, there you go um so he had that surgery same surgery as brandon ingram he had it for different underlying reasons but it was the same surgery so he had that uh, he had it about a month later than ingram did and so you know he's a month behind in terms of you know coming back he has been playing he's been full go practice he he's played in the preseason he is not fully comfortable yet. He's expressed some doubt himself about the comfort level and how long it's going to take him to feel totally normal. He does say he's making progress and that it's better. He is not experiencing the pain he experienced before the surgery, but he doesn't feel back to normal yet either. 
And so there's there's that question of health. But even if he gets healthy, to your point, you know, he was signed a year ago by a different front office to play for a different coach with a different set of teammates pursuing a different goal. And then since he's been hurt, literally everything has changed around him. And there's a real question of, you know, is he valued as much by the new regime um, and does he fit the new system? I mean, this, you know, Taylor Jenkins wants to play the pace and the space and, you know, Tom Anderson's called slow-mo and he can't really shoot. Um, but what I think he does have going for him is Jenkins seems to be pretty creative. I think Kyle Anderson needs a coach that is creative with his usage. You know, last season, you know, Jamie Bickerstaff talked in the preseason about we're going to put the ball in his hands, like him basically the backup point guard in some lineups, and it never happened. Um, they played their best basketball early last season with Kyle Anderson finishing games at power forward. Then they went away from it. He's just such a unique kind of player and he's such an odd skill set. I, I think you just have to be creative with using him. Like he needs to handle the ball. Um, he may be better at the four than at the three, but I like his game. I think he's really skilled. Um, I think he, in terms of with the ball, I think he's really good defensively. I think he was one of the maybe more one of the more more underrated perimeter defenders defenders in the league with his length and anticipation. I think he's a good player. Whether he's going to be a good player in Memphis in this system or whether you know he needs to get healthy and they move him on to somewhere else, I don't know. But I hope that that Taylor Jenkins like puts in the time to try to figure out how to use him. Yeah, again, this is a team that just needs good players. And I think he can be a good player. Uh, I thought he was miscast bringing him in as a three. You know, maybe right. they felt like with the shooting of Gasol uh, and Jackson that it could maybe work with him there. But it seems more like backup four for him, although his fit with Clark is a difficult one uh with the lack of shooting that they both have so maybe you know, he can fit better with uh jaron jackson and, and maybe there'll be some games where he plays and some games where clark plays on that second unit uh you know he might also be a trade candidate i i suppose uh, as well but yeah i mean he's probably their best perimeter defender he gets a lot of steals he's got length he's got some passing which uh outside of the point guard position is in right. pretty much in short supply on this team it, secondary ball handling we've been talking about that as a, a potential weakness so yeah it would be good to see if if he can find a role because there are things i like about his game but as as you mentioned it it is a, a pretty difficult fit you mentioned the management change and actually i didn't mention this to you on our list of topics but i didn't want to get your thoughts on just the management change what's going to be different under these guys i mean frankly for me talking around the league uh the zacks did not have the best reputation uh but i really actually like a lot of what they've done so far buoyed of course by moving up to get the number two pick but i think they've made a lot of nice moves around the margin here so far so what are your thoughts uh, on that whole transition i think that i think the from from the ownership on down i think they they felt like they weren't their front office work was not precise enough and i think you look at all the confusion the sort of the abbott costello routine around the dylan brooks marshawn brooks thing that happened back in december that didn't I think look the, good no that did not look good i mean it may have, it may well be that that was more the fault of a phoenix or a washington but like you know i, I think it, it sort of stains all three franchises right there was clearly some communication problems there i think there were some other moves that that i think at the top level it, they didn't feel like the that the front office was precise enough in their negotiations and and, and, and and everything they did in terms of thinking through and negotiating everything out to the very final edges of everything. And I think that was why the change happened. I mean, obviously it took a risk in a then 30 year old lead executive who, you know, hadn't even been an assistant GM till like a year or two before. 
um, not a deep background. But I, so I think there's a lot of skepticism. There was a lot of skepticism. But uh, once you get the job, you have to just judge people on what they do. And I think everyone's impressed by by their summer. And it's yeah, they got lucky getting the number two pick. But to me, what I look at is what they did with the Mike Conley trade. In terms of the deal that they got for Conley and the way they've continued to work the margins of that deal, um, you know, they flipped Mike Conley for like the way five players on this roster and four draft picks, and among those players still includes Iguodala and Crowder, who they may flip for yet more assets, you know, from there. They basically pulled three first-round picks out of that deal, along with you know Grayson Allen, who they're trying to develop, Anthony Mountain, who is on a subsequent deal they're trying to develop. Um, I just think the way that they maximize return and continue to work to maximize more return out of that Conley deal is really almost equal to the John, not equal to, but second to the John Morant luck is really what's gotten them off to, I think, a pretty good start on a rebuild. Yeah, and I was I thought that they did a masterful job in the Iguodala negotiations to get a good player uh, and just take him on and also get what could be a pretty darn juicy Warriors pick out in 2024. Very not only a pick, but very minimal protections. Like usually, yeah. that you would, that would be a lottery protected pick, and now they struck it at the exact time that they needed to, uh, knowing the desperation that the Warriors had to make that move happen, and that with the hard cap restrictions, they had to move Iguodala and they're able to extract a, a pretty penny out of that and you know who knows maybe they'll get something still out of Iguodala obviously the salary matching there is going to be difficult I'm sure Houston would love to have him but they don't have anyone that they can trade for him uh, well, they don't at this point to match salary I think Houston doesn't want to go into the tax that may be part of or deeper deep into the tax that may be part of the problem there uh, yeah know, well of- especially if there there's a report from Mark Stein that they may lose as much as 25 million dollars in Chinese sponsorship <laughs> revenue so uh Dillman right. Fertitta was already a little cash poor before this so um yeah anyway that, that that's a tangent but um yeah so it, it does seem like they're off to a pretty good start though overall we'll see i mean it's all you know there is a playbook for these types of uh rebuilds you know sam hinky obviously went the deepest into it in some ways it's kind of easy that's the easy part if you have the commitment from ownership to rebuild uh and it seems like they do at this point to to acknowledge that that's what it's going to be but once you get to the point of again being competitive you know that then you shift into a new phase and perhaps that's even kind of a different skill set maybe much like it is with coaches when you're developing talent versus trying to win in the playoffs but yeah for the rebuild i think they're off to a great start i think that's pretty clear to me yeah i mean i think you know i think i think this front office has shown they're good on the negotiation front i mean how good are they on the italian about the talent evaluation front and some of some of that aspect of it i think you know they're they're going to negotiate out and go after every little advantage they can and i think they'll be good at that respect in that respect yeah. in terms maybe of the maybe that's of the, why nobody right. seemed to like them <laughs> well that could be right <laughs> um you know nobody seemed to like hinky either and yet he was winning every trade so um yeah they're uh, off to a good start it, it, it's very early for them but but i i think you know the transaction by transaction they've, they've done a good job this summer um all right big strengths for this group <laughs> that's that's sort of hard i mean they're so they're so young and they're going to be so bad. I mean, it's sort of hard to find strengths. I, I think yeah. they have potential for a versatile, productive front court rotation with Jared Jackson, um, Jonas Valanciunas, uh, Brandon Clark, and some of the versatility. You know, with guys like Kyle Anderson, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff they can do w- with that mix of players. Um, I think they'll have good playmaking, and they'll need it at the point guard position in terms of a combination of of, of John Morant and Tyus Jones. Um, they'll they'll be good passing at point guard if nowhere else. Uh, maybe I'm sort of tipping the weaknesses, but 
I think, you know, they have productive young players in the front court. They have, you know, good playmakers at, at point guard, and, and they'll sort of start from there. Yeah, I would second those. Two that stick out to me, although they may be somewhat mutually exclusive based on personnel, running. John Morant is just going to push it down your throat, and it seems like Taylor Jenkins with the, that Bucks pedigree uh, is going to encourage that. Um, they they might not be I could see them being near the top of the league in transition frequency when Morant is on the floor but near the bottom of the league in transition points per possession but even when you're in transition and you're at the bottom of the league that's still much better than your half-court offense which uh you know as I'm sure we'll get to probably is going to struggle uh and then the other one I think is rebounding uh if you're going to play Jackson and Valanciunas together Jackson is not a good defensive rebounder which is part I think of why uh, they're loath to play him at, at center as much at least to, to start with uh but Valanciunas is one of the best offensive rebounders at his position uh now the Bucks did not offensive rebound a ton and it is somewhat uh opposed to having the floor spread to be a really good rebounding team but I think that with Valanciunas on the floor and Jackson as well that they have enough personnel that they can probably get there to be a a solid rebounding team uh, on both ends when they go with that group uh, but that, you know, Valanciunas is pretty well, slow, yeah, so that may take away Brandon the Clark might be an exceptional offensive rebounder. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's another one, too. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, the, those are the two that I probably... And then I guess, you know, length on defense as well. I think they could put right. out at least some athletic, talented groups. Now, you know, young teams are rarely good defensively. That's part of what my struggle was. You said they could be middle third of the league defensively. Um, you know, I have them just to kind of, you know, when you look at their personnel, I might even go higher than that. I mean, it, their personnel, I think, is, you know, solidly average, but, you know, Valanciunas is a little slow. Morant, I think, is going to be terrible. Uh, right. Tyus Jones is too small. They're going to play those guys together to get enough offense on the floor. And then just the overall young team tax, the playing out the string tax by the end. I, I projected them at, at 21st defensively in the league, but, you know, and it's here from 15 to 22. So, you know, I think they could be higher. They could put out some good units. They could look good at times. But overall, I think it, just, there are too many just macro factors going against them to be like an actual good defense. All right, we've hit on some of these already, but uh, weaknesses that we haven't mentioned yet. Um, well, I mean, when your two best players are ju- just turned 20 years old, that's, you know, youth is, is certainly part of it if you're trying to win this year. Um, on the court, I, I think I think they're I think playmaking outside of the point guard position, um, they don't have, especially on the wings, they really don't have people who have proven they can generate offense really for themselves or others um, outside of that point guard position on the wing. And I think sort of related to that, they don't have any proven shooting for for a team that wants to pace some space and let it fly. Um, there's only one player on the roster who has who has a career NBA three three point shooting percentage of better than 35 percent on better than 200 attempts, and that's Dylan Brooks, who is barely there. Um, there's just no proven shooting on a roster that wants, to, or not not much proven shooting on a roster that wants to get up a lot of threes. They they they, they may they could set some record for missed threes this season. Yeah, and I think really the only way you're going to get there is if you play Jackson at center and really let him bomb away. At, at this point in his career, maybe we'll see he's evolved beyond this, but you know he's probably about average three point shooter for the four position. When you get to the five, then he, he can start to look pretty good. And Jay Crowder gives you you know maybe average three point shooting at the four but below average at the three and so dylan brooks maybe average at the three but below average at the two you know so uh maybe they can get to a lineup that could be adequate shooting wise but it really is difficult especially because you don't have that one guy where you're just like all right we're not going to leave it I, I think maybe the best way to alleviate that is jackson just becomes like a complete monster and he's you know bombing eight threes a game or something like that and they really uh, 
focus in on that but they just have so many guys you know three of their four bigs anderson clark and valanchunas are you know have no established three-point shooting record whatsoever um you know if josh jackson plays he's a not a good shooter solomon hill isn't a good shooter uh caboclo has been you know kind of in and out uh maybe he could take a step forward so well, yeah they don't really have shooting, proven shooting from the point guard position either. Yeah. I mean, Ty's career, 32, 33 percent, low, low volume. John Morant, like, we'll, we'll see, but I don't think anyone expects him to be a plus shooter uh, as a rookie. And so, yeah, the, the, you know, I think the hope maybe is that the system and the penetration and passing of Morant and Jones will help create decent shots. And maybe they'll shoot sort of above their weight because of the quality of shots they're getting. But I, you know, I, I think it's hard to, hard to not see it as a weakness. The other thing I look at is I think these guys are going to foul like crazy. And it'll be an interesting dynamic because Jenkins comes from Mike Budenholzer's system. The Bucks went from fouling a ton to hardly fouling at all, in part because they just didn't allow offensive players with the, the incredible length that they had to get into the painted area where you're going to have fouls take place. Um, but Valanchunas has always been a high foul guy. Jackson, you mentioned his issues. They got a lot of young guys. Those guys generally foul more. I could see Grayson Allen having some five fouls in 15 minute games. Uh, so, uh, I think that that's going to be maybe a, a big problem with their defense, even if they might be relatively sound in other areas. Yeah, no, I agree. And the, the Jared Jackson Jr. style rate in particular is something I think people are going to be looking at this season to see i just wasn't concerned about it last year I, I, sort of rookie point guard turnovers rookie big man fouls or things i don't really care that much about but you want to see him sort of make an improvement in that area and get it to a manageable space yeah and i also think they're going to just turn the ball over like crazy too i mean that's gonna, another thing that's going to be just a massive struggle for them morant had you know led the ncaa in turnovers last year they're going to commit a ton of illegal screens they're not going to have any spacing they don't have great ball handlers i mean i think that they could be uh, as this team has been for uh, in many of their iterations one of the higher turnover teams in the nba yep um all right let's do some predictions here uh i will go first with a predicted record for the memphis grizzlies i'm gonna go with 26 wins for this group that's exactly what i have i i, I actually was a little lower and I've, I've i've gone through the annual process of talking yourself into it a little <laughs> bit more but, but i've talked myself into 26 basically at this point so i also have them at 26 and 56 yeah i recall their over under was 27 and a half and i just i have them as the number 29 offense you know i mean I, I, and i think uh to me they're like uh, the clear number 30 offense is charlotte but i think there isn't another team that profiles to struggle as as much as they do and maybe the fast break can help that maybe some of these guys will shoot better than their uh their histories would indicate but as of now especially with the turnover issues the lack of shooting uh the lack of playmaking i think it, it, you have to start there and maybe you know the clearest path for being a lot better is jaw is just a monster uh and well and yeah and they're also playing a western conference schedule and sure. so i could see on paper there may be as many as four teams in, in the east that are worse but i think the grizzlies they may or may not be the worst team in the west but i think it's impossible not to predict them right now to be the worst team in the west and if you're the worst team in the conference i mean there's a pretty hard ceiling i think on the number of wins you're going to get to yeah so i i think uh it, it's going to be tough with that defense and yeah the worst team in the conference as well and you know that's at max conference disparity which i think we're pretty close to there right now uh you know right. it's, it could be a punishment of about two wins to be in the harder conference you know with 59 of your or, or 58 of your games being uh uh against the no wait not nah, that's not right anyway <laughs> 24 extra games against the uh right the other conference um 
So best case scenario for these guys, just from a you record know, standpoint. 34, maybe. I, I have a hard time imagining anything higher than that. Um, I, you know, I, I think maybe if John Morant is good as a rookie, which remains to be seen, but if he's good as a rookie, as, you know, if he's more Derrick Rose, Russell Westbrook as a rookie than, you know, Mike Conley, Darren Fox as a rookie. Um, that would be a big help. Um, if Jaron Jackson Jr. takes a big step forward in year two instead of having a, the kind of consolidation season, I think a lot of the a lot of the best second year players last year had. Um, and and if Jaron Jackson and Yoshi Valanciunas mesh well together, which we just don't know yet, they only played together twice actually last season. I think if you know those core players sort of you know come together and, and are better than expected, then maybe you can get into the low thirties, low to mid thirties. Yeah, I'd go as high as 36 because I think this defense, it wouldn't be completely insane that they could get to like the number 10 defense uh, that with the talent that they have. I mean, Jackson, everyone's saying how good he is. Well, you know, if he's that good and he's really this game-changing defender and then you've got, you know, Crowder as a good history, Valanciunas can at least take up space inside. They've got a lot of guys with length. Anderson uh, falls into that Brandon category Clark. too. Yeah, Clark, Caboclo. I mean, like they have a lot of kind of unproven defenders, but they can put it all together with some of the talent that they have and you know Morant doesn't completely kill them um which you know I mean he's gonna have so many offensive responsibilities that's gonna be tough but uh yeah you know I I I mean I don't think there's that high of a ceiling on the offense you know maybe they're like the 25th or 24th best offense or something if everything goes great but uh yeah I think that that defense could carry them to total respectability in a best case scenario um how about worst case Oh, I mean, worst cases are the worst team in the league, and, and, and they've sub-20 win, you know, 18 wins. I mean, something like that, that's certainly possible. Um, if, if Morant really struggles as a rookie, um, if, if, if they just, if they just, you know, miss, miss, you know, 23s every night, basically, they, they let it fly and they let it clank over and over again. Um, Morant's not good. Um, you know, I, it, you know, I think they're just so young that the possibility of, of a sub-21 season has to be realistic. Yeah. I'm slightly more optimistic than you. I'd go with a, uh, a 20 win season, but yeah, I mean, obviously if you have some bad luck in terms of close games, which, uh, these guys probably won't be too good in close games if they're you know I, i've never seen much evidence of an effect for youth but that does seem to be uh an established codicil that the uh the young teams do not perform as well uh, in close games um and yeah having a place to go uh, someone who can score i mean yeah just overall scoring on this team i mean it's, it's a huge week i mean they have who's going to create like an, an iso on this team for example like late clock you're just you're really going to struggle so um all right, uh, where can we keep up with your stuff here uh, throughout the season and, and learn more about this exciting young Memphis Grizzlies team? Um, you follow me on Twitter at Harrington NBA. That's my my basketball Twitter feed, and I, I post links to everything I write there. You can also come to our site at uh, DailyMemphian.com. Did a big piece this week on uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. and John Morant together. Sort of a, a little bit of a do-over for the NBA, maybe on the on the Marbury KG kind of young point guard big man look, which I I do think the Grizzlies will be much more interesting than they are good this season. Yeah, I mean, I'm really it's going to be one of my favorite teams to watch. I, I think early in the season, I'm looking forward to seeing their first preseason game against like actual NBA competition. And, and also, by the way, if you're, if you're visiting Memphis, Chris uh, was telling me when we had a little. Uh, a little break due to technical difficulties that uh he does uh food articles as well in memphis yeah i write about a little bit of anything connected to memphis i've probably written about it at one time or another so <laughs> if anyone's coming to memphis and they want food tips like hit me up on twitter i'm always happy to happy to help out yeah I, 
as I was telling you before, I, I took this 12,000 mile road trip this off season and I only had time to swing through Memphis for like an hour and it was at 10 in the morning. So I was hard pressed to find a barbecue place. I ended up at Germantown Commissary because it was, they opened at 930, but I'm uh, looking forward to getting back into town and, and having some of the real stuff. Not the Germantown Commissary wasn't good, but uh, it, it wasn't no, no, we, the we, we, we like the commissary, commissary, but we, we have a lot of options. We'll, we'll be happy to take you on a barbecue tour next time you're in town. Yeah, I mean, anything with commissary in the name is generally going to be pretty good uh, from my experience. So, all right. Thanks again, Chris. I appreciate having you on. All right. Thanks, Nate. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.